This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Today in The Spectator, Steve Bust, great reporter, had a piece that says that millennials are taking over Hamilton. It's the millennial takeover. Now, for, for a number of people, they have no idea what that means whatsoever. That's fine. We're going to get to that. And maybe saying that it's a takeover is a little strong and a little aggressive. I don't know. But it the story that he wrote says 28% now of the residents of this city fall into the definition of millennials. That would be those born between 1977 and 2000. 28%. So the question I had as I'm, as I'm looking at this story and reading this story is what does that actually mean? Not just to what is a millennial, but what does it mean to our city? Well, Leah Schwartz is the senior cons- senior content specialist with Futurecast. It's a research and marketing firm specializing in reaching millennials. And she joins me now. Leah, thanks for doing this tonight. No problem. How's it going? It's, it's going great. Although, as I say, a lot of people... Now, I mean, this is something that you deal with every day, but there are still a lot of people who are not really, I guess, crystal clear on what the whole millennial thing means. So what is... A millennial is it simply is the definition simply as simple as nineteen seventy seven to two thousand born and that's it? Sure. So that's actually a great question, and that is one that we get all the time. Who are these millennials? What is this species that's coming up? Um, really, it's kind of hard to define. A lot of people talk about birth years, um, and there isn't really kind of that defined birth year. Um, we like to talk about millennials in the sense of 18 to 34 years old, roughly. Um, so it's that generation that is, you know, has grown up with the internet, has grown up with social media, is digitally native, is mobile native, um, really kind of uses technology to make everyday life decisions. Okay. Now every, we know that every generation has a name now we've, we've gotten to that point. So you've got the millennials now and they would have followed the, um, what, what would the last one have been the Gen Y? Yep. Well, Gen, Gen X. So Gen Y and millennials are typically the same. Okay. So then Um, Gen X. Yep. And then baby boomers before that. All right. And every one of those has positive and negative connotations that people have in their mind about what they are. What would be the, the general, when you're dealing with millennials, what is the most common positive thing people think about that group when they hear that name? And what's the thing they least popular or least complimentary they think when they hear that name? Sure. So that's always a double-edged sword, right? Um, One of the things we hear most often about millennials is this is a selfish generation. This is a generation that wants everything. They want it now. They don't want to work for it. They just want to see the return immediately. And while millennials see that, um, or I'm sorry, while older generations see that as a negative thing, millennials are are sitting there kind of saying, yeah, we, we do. We want it now. And it's really kind of fueled this entrepreneurial spirit in a new way than what we've seen in the past. Um, you know, entrepreneurialism is nothing new. It's nothing extraordinary or it's nothing revolutionary, but it is totally transforming the way that this generation is approaching kind of their everyday life situations, be it office place, be it um, social media, be it kind of creating their own opportunities. And so that's kind of really where we're seeing that negative aspect come through, where it's you know, this is a very selfish generation. And the millennials themselves really kind of flipping that, saying, yeah, we kind of are, but we're using it to create a better world, to create a better community. 
what would the then what would the world be? What kind of world does a typical and again, we understand that everybody is different, right? So not everybody who falls into this age group thinks exactly the same. We're not a herd. But generally, yeah. typically, what kind of world is it that a millennial that the typical millennial wants? Well, it's really interesting when we, to back up a little bit, when, when you say that there isn't a typical millennial, right? One of the things that we talk about really often is the idea of a millennial mindset. So when we talk about this millennial mindset and we kind of talk about this new way of thinking, we're not only defining 18 to 34-year-olds, right? I mean, my mother, who is very much not a millennial, orders Starbucks on her smartphone. Um, that's a trend that we're seeing across across the market, and it's not only defined to one group of people. So it's, the question isn't necessarily, what is the world millennials want to live in, right? The question becomes much bigger. It becomes, what is this kind of new world that the general market is living in? And that really is defined by technology, by innovation, by these constantly evolving programs that we're seeing all over the place. And it's interesting you talk, you use your mother as an example, or other people who would do those kind of things. No, it's great, because... Sure. Not only does it suggest, first of all, that many of the things that millennials have latched onto or taken to are spilling over, and I'm sure that goes both ways, mm-hmm. but it mm-hmm. also suggests we've, again, the story that's in our paper here that 28% of our city is now millennials, that suggests that they they are now, plus the fact that they are now voting age, so this is not a millennial mm-hmm. uh, era Absolutely. that is. 10 years old or eight years old, this is now a group that can severely, not severely, seriously affect the direction of a city, of a province, of a state, of a country. This is a group that now has a lot of power. Sure. I mean, I agree that they, they have that ability oh, yeah. based on their voting block ability, if, if in fact they do think alike, to, to make some big changes. Absolutely. And just kind of looking at the general trends, and again, this is speaking in broad terms. Not everyone is one person, right? Not everyone thinks the same way, but this is a group that really is looking at the world from a different perspective. Um, This, based on the data, kind of based on the trends we're seeing, is a much more accepting group of people. This is a much more um, relatively liberal group of people, and it really is kind of affecting the way, you know, I work in the marketing space. It's affecting the way brands and businesses are, are reaching this consumer group and really kind of the audience in general. I want to take a couple minutes here, and I'm on your website right now, uh, millennialmarketing.com, sure. and there is a great series of graphics. I'm just going to go over some of these with you because I think it's fascinating because I think it actually does really, in a very great way, explain what the, who this group is. Uh, millennials make up 21% of consumer discretionary purchases, which is over a trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. Now, what I find interesting about that, and the first thing, is that they, in the States, make up 25% of the population. So they're actually spending right now below their weight, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. Which I don't know, is that, yeah. is that because they don't have the money? Is that because they're looking at the market in a different way from other generations? So one thing that we have seen um, pretty substantially with this group is a trade-up, trade-down mentality. Um, so... While, while this group really is kind of coming into their peak earning years, they're starting families, they're really starting to establish themselves as professionals and maintaining good salaries and things like that, they're still not totally exiting that budget lifestyle from college or from previous years. Um, this is a generation that has Groupon, that has 
Airbnb and it's almost a badge to show how much you've saved, <laughs> okay. right? There's yep. nothing no. better than winning kind of that trip to Thailand and guess how cheap I got my flights. Um, it's kind of a badge to be savvy and to be not cheap, but to be really intentional with purchases and, and things like that. And we're seeing kind of that trade up, trade down. They're trading up on the things that they really deem valuable and trading down where they can afford to make that sacrifice. Well, and if you're living your life in a lot of ways, as you say, in the digital era, it's very easy to shop. Whereas before, two generations ago, you had to go to the mall, you had to go downtown. And if you want to start comparing, exactly. that's, a, that's a trip. Now you can do it in two mm-hmm. minutes from your, from your lap. Exactly. And so with that ease comes the opportunity to save and also to spend more in other areas. I find this next one really interesting. Millennials believe parenthood is a partnership. Okay, that, that's fine. 50% of mothers, millennial age moms say yes. 64% of fathers say yes. I fully expected that, that would have been flipped around. It's always been that the mothers would have said, yeah, come on, it's a partnership. Chime mm-hmm. in here. Now it's the guys mm-hmm. who have a higher percentage who say, yeah, we're both in this together. Exactly. And and this is a really interesting topic, too. We've spent a pretty significant amount of time looking at millennial parents. Um, and if, if you're interested, we do have a book on the topic. It's, it's Millennials with Kids, Marketing to the Surprisingly Different and Generation of Parents. Um, but really what we're seeing, I think, to me, the most surprising thing about millennial parents is really this idea of partnership. Um, it's very much more modern family, less leave it to beaver. Um, we're kind of seeing the roles flip a little bit, right? Dad is much more involved in child rearing versus just providing. And mom is much more able to kind of balance those dual roles. Um, and that's something that's really important to millennial parents. And that's something they really aspire to achieve in this kind of transition period of their lives. 50% of millennials would be more willing to make a purchase from a company if their purchase supports a cause. Now that, mm-hmm. again, uh, really interesting to me because obviously we see companies now that are being very much more socially active. Um, are companies, I'm assuming that companies are also smart enough to recognize this. It's not, that, so in other words, sure. not every country deep, not every company, pardon me, deep down is philanthropically socially geared, but they look at this and go, man, if we say we're going to give X dollars for every purchase, we've got a big audience here. Or, or am I being no, way totally. too cynical? No, 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 no. I think you're right on the mark. Um, I mean, a lot of the clients that we work with don't have direct relationships um, with, a, with, you know, huge global initiatives, but it's still that opportunity to align with a cause that's bigger than just selling a product. And that alignment is what is really important to millennials. It's they want to see the truth behind what they're buying. It's not just buying a product. It really is buying into a company and the core values and the mission and the purpose and things like that. And that really is a strong trend. Um, And the smart brands are really starting to tap into that. You know, it's hard to walk into a store now without seeing the buy one, give one model or without seeing, you know, the, the raise up your change to donate kind of kind of platforms or the or green or you know whatever else is is or green exactly totally here's the the next spot on your on the your website and this hits right to the target you set off the top when I asked you for the thing that people think positively and negatively about millennials and the thing you said that they are self engrossed or self immersed forty six percent of millennials according to your website report having two hundred plus 
Facebook friends, while 19%, only 19% of non-millennials, which suggests on its face that, I mean, my interpretation of that would be really shallow, really surface, not very, I mean, your, your friends, what, what is a Facebook friend? It's someone who puts a click on your thing. And so, I mean, it, am, again, am I reading the wrong thing into that? Um, there's no, I mean, there's always two ways to read it. The way I, I like to look at it is when you think about millennial generation specifically in regards to social media, it's very much a curated identity. Um, you're looking at Facebook, you're looking at Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, all of these different channels. Millennials are using them differently. It's not the same picture on each channel. Um, so it's very much the friends that I have on Facebook might be very different friends from who I have on Instagram, who might be different friends than I have on Snapchat, and they're all getting different content from me. So it's really kind of creating this identity that's constantly in motion, that's very fluid. Um, And those friends are relative to that channel and to that fluidity. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, we only have a few minutes left here. And so I, I want to, there's a lot of other things and I'm going to give your website out again at the end because people, you're going to want to go on there. People want to go on there and look at this because it's really, really interesting. But going back to the story, the reason I have you on tonight, the story that's in the paper about the huge growth of millennials in the city, what should a city then be doing with this group? What does this group if you're city council in, in this city or any other city and you realize this is now a massive block of potential voters, what do you do with that group? How do you get their attention to, I mean, do you have to, for lack of a better term, suck up to them or is, or how do you deal with a group this big that's suddenly coming into their adulthood and their voting years and their muscle flexing years, if you want to say that? Sure. Isn't that the million dollar question? <laughs> Um, that's, that's the question we get every day is what do we do with this huge group of people? How do we harness this energy? Um, in regards to a city specifically, my, my first approach or my best guess would be really to kind of look at these employment opportunities. Um, this is a generation and it's, it's interesting to see kind of how it's evolved. These aren't kids playing beer pong in the back of fraternity Hmm. houses anymore, right? This is a group that is very much in the workplace, um, making, you know, kind of that mid-level salary already, having kids. And so really engaging them in those areas is an untapped market that a lot of businesses, a lot of brands are just starting to identify. And they sound like, and honestly, again, when you look through the, the list of things that you point out in your site, it sounds like, despite what some people may think, it sounds like a strongly principled group. We may we may disagree with those principles, some people, yes. but it's a very, very strongly so. principled group. Very much so. And to your point, it's not, it's not sucking up versus not sucking up. It's just identifying and recognizing those opinions and those, those values. Last thing before I let you go, Lee, because we really are running late here. This, um, we talk about the size of this block, but it's a very different attitude in a lot of ways from their parents' generation and their grandparents' generation. There's a lot of, it seems to me, move away from traditional and from what they've grown up with. And so when we talk about this group as potentially having a lot of opportunity to flex its muscles in a city and make changes, do they vote? Or is that seen as too traditional? They, they're socially active. They will be politically active as far as going on Facebook or something to say, I hate Donald Trump or whatever. But do they actually follow that up by getting to the ballot and voting? 
Mm-hmm. And that's something we're in the process of exploring now. It's You're right, this is a very active group, and they are very quick to make a judgment. The, the follow-up then is, okay, well, put action to that. How do we put action to that judgment? Um, yes, they will vote, but yes, they have to care very strongly. Um, this is, you know, it was the rock the vote. It was kind of that MTV voting hmm. tribe in high school that really built that foundation. And so they were always raised with that mentality of, yes, it's okay to share your opinion. Yes, it's okay to voice what you believe. Um, and now they're at an age where they can start to act on it and really make a difference. And I do think that we'll see that happen, um, particularly this year. It is really fascinating stuff. I would encourage everyone again to go to thespec.com or the spectator, grab a copy of the paper. It's on the front page today. It's by Steve Bust. Uh, it's all about the changing demographics of the city here. And then once you've done reading that and you're still trying to learn more about what millennials are, uh, go to the, the website that we're just talking about is called millennialmarketing.com. All one word, all lowercase, www.millennialmarketing.com. And there's tons of stuff there. Lee, really appreciate you taking the time to, to help us out tonight with this. No problem. Thanks so much, Scott. It is, uh, it, it, you know, y- you can poo-poo it. And you can say, I'm not interested, but I'm telling you, this is a group. If we're talking about 28% of the city, it's a group you have to be paying attention to because they are going to have a huge impact on this city going forward. You may be one of them. You realize the possibility you have to make an impact. You may not be one of them, but you are saying, oh, you know, they're all selfish and they're all on Facebook. Well, you can think that, but that doesn't describe does, doesn't mean they don't still have an ability to make a huge impact. You th- you don't think that all the downtown stuff, all the urban renewal, the bike lanes, you don't think that has something to do with millennials? That has a lot. A lot of the stuff we're talking about in this city day after day, especially around the downtown, is being driven by this age group. Take some time and learn about it. It's important. Millennial marketing. Dot com. There's all there's all kinds of other stuff on this website about marketing. You don't have to look at that. What you're looking for actually is millennialmarketing.com and then who are millennials. That's where you want to go read. It's really, really interesting stuff. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. So I'm reading a story online today, and I got to tell you, I was just completely taken with the idea of this because I thought this was such a cool thing. Now, I am not an old car guy. I am, I am so unhandy that the idea of me finding an old car and fixing it up and fiddling around under the hood and doing all that kind of stuff, just not a possibility at all. But we have a guy just around the street from where we live who actually, when they built their house, built a third garage onto the front of the house. And when you drive by all through the summer, he's got the garage door up and he's tinkering on his car. And I swear he takes the thing apart just to put it back together over and over again. That car is a part and together more times, but he loves it. And a lot of people do. But what happens when you find an old car, you fix it up, you put all that money and that time and that love into it, and you then realize when you're about to take it out for a drive on the road or show it somewhere, that there is one piece missing that doesn't fit in. You've got a 1952 whatever that you've put together, and suddenly you've got a modern license plate that doesn't fit at all. Sounds like a small piece. Go look at some old cars and put a modern license plate on it. It doesn't work. License plates over the years have changed a ton, which again, 
never dawned on me until you actually see some cars with the new license plates on it that look not so good. Well, Eric Veterati owns yomplates.ca. That's his website. Uh, He finds old license plate, restores them, gets them in shape to be put on vintage cars, and then makes them legal. He joins me now. Eric, thanks for doing this tonight. Well, thanks for having me on. I got to tell you, I had, until I read this story today, I had no idea this was a thing. I didn't know what you did even existed. (laughs) No, it's interesting uh, because the ministry doesn't do a good job in advertising the program at all, actually, and... uh, uh, it's a law that's been around uh, since uh, the year 2000, and uh, they have one lonely page on their website that talks about it, uh, but you have to go digging to find it. And uh, essentially, uh, you know, uh, I restore the plates uh, um, so that people can uh, put on a same-year plate on their vehicle, uh, so long as it's before 1973. Uh, after that point, uh, the uh, plates were no longer stamped with uh, with years on them. And this is completely legal. If I find a plate from whatever year, and I can drive, I can put them on my car, and they're roadworthy. I can drive with them. Uh, yeah, uh, there's a there's a few caveats, but uh, all things being equal, uh, yes. Uh, essentially, what happens is there's two kind of major points that have to be taken into consideration if, uh, if you're going to do that. One is that you have to find a old license plate pair that has uh, an available number in the uh, ministry system. Uh, the problem is, is we've been using the same system since 1980, and uh, the province uh, has not done a what they call a refresh in the system. So what ends up happening is they've pretty well exhausted all of the combinations out there that you can imagine. So uh, it just so happens that old plates have similar combinations that match existing entries in the database. So that's step one, is trying to find a clear number. And then step two is the ministry will only allow uh, legible plates on the road. So what you have to do is uh, either find a very nice original condition pair, which is tough to do the older you get, uh, or have them refinished. And uh, uh, this is the only program actually in the province of Ontario that uh, lets you actually submit a restored pair. Uh, you, you're not allowed touching up other other plates hmm. uh, that are currently in use. So and and as you said, unlike our uh, friends to the south who get the benefit of only needing a rear license plate, we have to actually find two of them. Uh, that's exactly it. Uh, 99% of the years uh, in our history had matching pairs, so you do need to find a matching pair. There's only a few years in uh, uh, the World War II era where we only had one uh, rear plate uh, because of the metal shortage, but... Uh, all, all that being said, yeah, you know, nine times out of ten, you're going to need the pair. Okay, so I have a. Uh, tell me, what would be what would be a really common year, a common car, maybe not even common, someone something special that somebody might want to come to you and get, like 1960, what, what? Uh, definitely uh, 1969 is, I'd say, my most requested year. Uh, reason being is the uh, that's uh, the the muscle car okay. uh, era. Uh, everybody wants a uh, you know a pair for their muscle car and and 1969 because it's a dark blue background. Uh, back then, uh, uh, plates uh, on the odd years, so the 67, 69, 71, for instance, uh, they were blue backgrounds. So really? really? Okay. Stand, yeah. So they really stand out on the uh, on the road as opposed to the white backgrounds, which were the even years. Uh, so 
guys really want something that stands out, and uh, those blue backgrounds uh, do. And okay, that, so I'm not a yeah. car guy, as I said. So right. what would what would be a 1969 car that would be at the top of the heap that that guys would really want? What would be the what am I looking uh, for here? Uh, probably a Mustang. Okay, so I've got a sixty. <laughs> I got a '69 Mustang, and I yep. go on your website. I call you up, and I say, Eric, I, I got to find a pair of plates for a '69 Mustang. How do you begin going about the process? How do you start to look and actually find them for them? Uh, well, usually, what I do is uh, on a popular year like that is I actually have a, a waiting list, and um, uh, because it's rare that I have those uh, in stock, but. Uh, usually I go down to Southern Ontario. I'm, I'm from Eastern Ontario myself. So what I do is, uh, I take a few trips, uh, during the year down to Southern Ontario and I, I basically pick all over the province, uh, through flea markets, antique shops, and I'm phoning in, uh, plate combinations to see if they'll, if they'll clear, if they're uh, clear in the system. And basically I'll haul them all back in one shot hmm. and then I'll slowly start working on them through the, uh, through the year. So I'm filling orders as I go, basically. But you're not, do you make plates ever? Can you make, so if you have one, are you, do, can you make a matching one or do you have to find them both? Uh, no. And uh, that's the other thing is that they won't uh, allow reproduced plates under it. So you do have to find an old pair in original condition. Uh, and uh, the, the one thing that, the only thing that you can do is restore them if, uh, it, 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 you know, if they're too far gone. Uh, but they do have to be original that uh, basically were issued by the ministry way back when. So how far have you gone, or how far would you go to actually find a pair of plates? Uh, I've gone pretty far. Uh, <laughs> basically, you know, all the way down to, to your neck of the woods. Uh, uh, I've been down to uh, as far as probably uh, uh, one year I went all the way down to London. So, um, you know, and... Uh, it helps too. I have family that lives in northern Ontario, so I'll sometimes look up there if I'm up there visiting. But uh, uh, generally speaking, I'd say the GTA, uh, just because you know that's where uh, vintage plates were were basically doled out by the hundreds back then, uh, seeing that's where all uh, where all the uh, the cars were back in the, those days. Because uh, I go as far back as uh, the late uh, uh, teens. Wow. Um, yeah. And based on your history. Is everything out there if you look hard enough? Can you can you really? I mean, if you really want to dig, can you find a plate for every year? Oh, definitely. And uh, I would say right now on my website, I'd, I'd probably have ninety five percent of uh, of the years in stock, uh, probably post nineteen, uh, you know, nineteen twenty. Uh, so uh, a lot of it is nice that I'll have finished stock ready, where a customer can you know point and click and get in touch with me and we'll make the the sale right on the spot. It's only the tougher years, like I said, the 1969 or, for instance, another popular one is 1957. Everybody wants a, a pair for their 57 Chev. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, okay. Yeah. And yeah. do people know, when you walk in, do people, do most people know that these plates actually have value? Or do you tell them, hey, here's what I'm going to do with it? Because I would think that would just say, oh, fine, then the price has just gone up by seven times. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know what? It's uh, there's hardly no um, uh, awareness of the program. Uh, with sometimes, so nine times out of ten, I, I'd say people uh, don't know uh, about it and what uh, possibly they're worth. Um, and the, the caveat there too is that ninety five percent of the plates out there don't work, unfortunately, mm. because 
the numbers aren't available. So I'm really looking for a needle in a haystack uh, yeah. nine, uh, most of the time. But you will get the odd seller that'll say, hey, I was on this guy's website in Ottawa that has, uh, you know, pairs posted and, and he's asking X amount. What, what do you think I should sell them to you for? <laughs> <laughs> so you do get that as well. This is totally off topic, but I do have to ask. It just popped into my head. Uh, once upon a time, were license plates actually made by prisoners in jail like we always heard they were stamped by the, the guys who were in for whatever? Well, actually, uh, Ontario is one of the few jurisdictions that still has their uh, uh, license plates made in a uh, correctional system. Really? Yeah. So it's uh, true. Okay. Yeah, and uh, actually we started doing that all the way back in 1931. So um, it's been a long-standing uh, tradition here in the uh, province that uh, uh, plates are, are made uh, by uh, uh, correctional uh, facilities. So That's funny, because I always just thought that was the cliché or something that we just threw up, but I didn't <laughs> actually think it was true, but all right, there you go. Yeah, uh, no, it's it's very common. South of the border, you'll see probably uh, you know half the states uh, are doing that as well. So once you, okay, you find a pair of plates, you now take them back to your place, to your shop, whatever it is. Um, what do you do? How, how do you know, let's say you've got a 1947 Ontario license plate. How do you know what it's supposed to look like? Well, uh, this is where it ties into, I guess, my uh, uh, kind of uh, side hobby or passion. I've been collecting uh, license plates for almost 25 years. It, it just started uh, on a whim one day that, hey, how about we collect one one plate from each jurisdiction or state or province and uh essentially you know i uh started collecting uh ontario plates and uh i over the years i've amassed a uh collection of every year in almost pristine uh condition mm. so what i do is i basically uh color match the uh, uh the paint with a, 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 an existing plate on hanging on my wall that uh, is a, a pristine example of what it would look like there is a picture that I saw of you online with the story, and you are. You're standing in front of this wall of plates, and I'll tell you something else I had no idea about. You mentioned that the, the off years were the dark blue versus the white blue for a while, but there's green Ontario plates, there's red Ontario plates, there's yellow Ontario plates, there's brown Ontario plates, there's every mix and match of the colors. I had, I mean, I know you have the, the farm vehicle one, which is different, but most of them, I had no idea there were that many over the years. Yeah, there's a lot of funky colors out there that happened, uh, particularly uh, particularly in the 60s and 70s. So, uh, back then, uh, uh, transport trucks and commercial vehicles, they, they got what was called a quarterly plate. So if you can believe it, in our disposable society, uh, every quarter you would get a new plate if you wanted to pay quarterly, huh. if you were a business. <laughs> so you can imagine... Uh, you know the the wastage back then, but uh, which explains uh, why they're all hanging in bars now. Exactly. So I mean, those are are a dime a dozen, um, and they did have a whole bunch of funky colors for those uh, uh, for those commercial plates. But none of those are really applicable under the uh, the year of manufacture program because uh, they weren't intended for uh, regular uh, car plates back then. And and Eric, some of the plates, which I was surprised, are not even metal. Uh, yeah, uh, basically, uh, before they were prison made in 1931, Ontario basically went out and, uh, you know, put out uh, a request for proposal out to the industry, uh, in Ontario and basically said, you know, here's, here's what you need to bid on, uh, what, what can you produce? So for instance, the, uh, the second license plate ever that uh, was produced in the province of Ontario was, uh, 
made by a company called uh, Gutta Percha uh, Tire Company. They made tires, and uh, they decided to bid that year, and, and they made the license plates. So uh, they actually stood up well in retrospect, um, and that's from 1905, if you can believe it. And what were they made out of? Uh, they were made out of rubber. Rubber license plates? Rubber license plates, yep. You can't yeah. possibly, though, if someone comes to you with a 1905 request, you can't find any of those around, can you? No, uh, pretty well when you get back, uh, I'd say past 1917, uh, A, there's not a lot of cars on the road from that era any longer, and B, uh, you know, the collectible value on those is just so high that, you know, I wouldn't even tr- remotely try to stock a, a pair uh, in that era just because the uh, it's cost prohibitive and really a guy with a, a you know, a classic car isn't going to want to pay that type of price either. Well, and I got to believe that probably those that were out there, the owners looked at these at one point and said, who got the idiot kids toy rubber license plates and just threw them out because they never thought that they actually were anything. Oh, I know. I'm sure there's horror stories similar to, <laughs> you know, the hockey cards or baseball exactly. cards where they were just tossed out. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Now, okay, is this, we just got a couple of minutes here. You do this. Is this your business or is this a side business? Like, is there enough business here to make a business out of this? Uh, it's a it's a side business. Uh, you know, it uh, it basically self funds my hobby, and uh, uh, you know, it's a it's a you know, basically a, a labor you know of love. And uh, you know, that being said, uh, it 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 still it creates enough where. Um, you know, I, I register everything, uh, you know, uh, formally with CRA and whatnot on a, on a yearly basis, but it's not big enough where I'm, you know, having to collect, uh, let's say eight desk key on every sale or anything <laughs> like that. But, uh, I do have a classic car myself and, uh, it helps maintain the bills on that. <laughs> mm, yeah, no, for sure. What, okay. So if I go on your website, typically in a, I mean, in a, in a range, what does a, a license plate cost? I want to buy one. What am I going to pay between what and what? Yeah, on average, uh, I'd say a ballpark ranger in about one hundred and twenty dollars for a. That's not uh, bad. A ref- no, for a refinished pair, which is you know, when you think about it, uh, it guys are spending you know ten, fifteen, twenty, you know, easily forty thousand on some of these classic cars. When you think you know, finishing touch uh, for me anyway, the purchase price is one hundred and twenty dollars. There is a bit of a, a fee from the. Uh, uh, ministry, they'll, they charge about a $250, uh, to register the plate. Um, uh, so, you know, uh, you're out the door probably around the, the $400 range, four to $500 range, depending on, on total price. Does anybody just buy them not for an old car, but does anybody just say, Hey, that's a really cool license plate. I want one for my wall and say, can I get one? Yeah, and I'll usually, uh, you know, I'm an honest seller. Um, I don't like uh, railroading people uh, with a high purchase price. So, you know, if they come to me and say, look, you know, uh, uh, my Uncle Bill is having a a birthday party. uh, He was born in 65, or I just want a a wall hanger for 1970. I'll say, you know what, I I have some that are not YOM valid. I'll sell, you know, 20 bucks for the pair type of thing, you know. So uh, definitely, that's a great, that's, you know what, that. Eric? That is actually a great gift idea. Uh, yeah, now that you say it, it really is. I never even thought of that, but that's a really cool idea. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a novelty, you know, a year birth. Uh, yeah, it it gets people talking. Do you have any? Um, do I mean do people when they when they order one of these though for their classic car and they it's the final piece that they have to put on there? Do, do people ever send you pictures back with them with their car? Do you have a collection of? what your work has done in the classic car world to top everything off? 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I really, uh, I try and build a, a nice relationship with my customers, seeing it is a niche market. And, and it's true. Uh, I tell them, you know, send me a picture of your car when it's uh, all done and plated. And sure enough, uh, on my website, I have a, a one of my pages uh, it's called The Showroom. And uh, I have, you know, uh, many pictures on there of, uh, of customers' cars uh, with uh, with their plates on it. So that that's the rewarding part of it is you, you get to, you know, put a piece of metal on somebody's car that's, you know, 50, 60, 80 years old, and uh, it lives on, which is really neat. Very, very cool story. Eric Veterati, uh, again, you can find his website. It's capital Y, capital O, capital M, uh, which is year of make, right? Year of make? Yeah, year of make. Year, year of make of plates. Yeah. Yep. Year of make plates, lowercase plates. At Y-O-M, all capitals, then plates, lowercase, but no break, one word, dot C-A. And you can see all the stuff on there. You can see the license plates. You can see what's out there. Eric, listen, I, I think it's fascinating. I think it's a, it's a really, um, I, as I say, I had no idea this thing would even exist. It never dawned on me that you could find plates to go with your classic cars or anything like that. Re- really cool idea. I encourage people to go take a look at your site. Thanks for doing this. Well, thank you very much for having me on tonight. It is, uh, again, go look at it. It's yomplates.ca. And, you know, he just said that. And, I, I mean, I, I wasn't having him on here as a sales pitch because, I mean, I don't know how many people who are listening drive a classic car they've rebuilt or something like that. I don't know how many people would actually buy it. But the idea to find a plate or a pair of plates for someone who's in their birth year, that's actually kind of a neat idea. If you're looking for something really unique to give someone, it's not the worst idea in the world, quite frankly. Now I know what I'm going to get Luke for his next birthday. Oh, actually, wait. I don't give Luke birthday presents. And besides, they look exactly like the plates that we have right now. Luke is so young that the plates look exactly like they do right now. But I mean, I, the numbering and lettering is a little different. Well, maybe. Maybe. No, not maybe. Is it a little different? I, I predate the four-letter, three-number system. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to check your birth certificate to make sure. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. We are getting very close to the day when kids go back to school. That day is coming, and it's coming really soon, even though it doesn't really feel like it. And that's okay. We don't need to have a full-on chill to send them back. We're okay with this weather, but it's coming. Labor Day is Monday. Tuesday, kids are back to school. And I'll tell you what I wanted to do. Well, first of all, let me bring in Jamie West, the executive producer of this show, but also the host of Sunday Brunch, right here on 900 CHML. Jamie, thanks for doing this tonight. Thanks, Todd. Great to be with you. So I wanted Jamie to come in, A, because I think he would have a lot to say on this, but B, he and I are you know roughly of the same vintage, and this falls into the category. What I'm going to do falls into the vintage that those of us of our era it'll they'll understand it and if you are if you are in your 40s 50s you'll get this if you're probably in your 30s it'll be similar if you're older you probably had kids that went through this or you went through it as a parent or even older than that as a grandparent so let me do this Jamie what I'm going to do I got this website that I found today and it's a blog it's someone wrote this it's called widelawnsblogspot.ca I take no credit for writing this I did not write a word of this. I want to put this out there. This sure. is written entirely by someone else, and I came upon it, and I laughed so hard when I read this today that I'm going to go through this. I've never done this before. I've never just read something 
that someone else has written. But feel free to jump in at any moment here, Jamie, because you're this is going to hit right in your wheelhouse, and, and feel free to participate. Okay. This is called Back to School, the 70s versus Today. Okay, so we're going to start back to school in the 1970s. Number one, take the kids downtown to go shopping at Sears for back-to-school clothes the last week of August. Get everyone a new pair of corduroys and a striped T-shirt. <laughs> Buy the boys a pair of dungarees and the girl girls a pair of culottes. No, Jennifer, you can't have that orange, orange and red poncho. Promise you will crochet her a better one with much more fringe. Get the girls a package of that rainbow fuzzy yarn they like in their hair, and you're done. You have spent a total of $43. Now take everyone to the Woolworths lunch counter for grilled cheese and chocolate milk. <laughs> Ring any bells? Those were the halcyon days, weren't they? Did you have the back-to-school corduroys? Oh, absolutely. And, and I had, um, I had the, you, you had navy uh, was the one choice, and, there, and tan. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the hide-the-dirt tan. And Dan were the other, and they and they were Levi's. But you also had to get the. Yeah, I also got the customary one pair, sometimes two, if my parents were flush that year, of the Levi's orange tab, uh, indigo jeans. The ones where when you wore them the first few times, the indigo got all over your skin, and and you didn't. You had to wash them separately. <laughs> Because the indigo got everywhere, and those were the same jeans that come June 25th, you cut off, and they became your summer shorts for the whole whole summer, so that you didn't, you know, you didn't have to go out and buy buy shorts. Yeah, I remember the one year that I didn't get the new jeans, I got the tough skins, which were the oh. polyester jean-like fabric. <laughs> that if you tore the knee, they literally ripped a circle right around the uh, right around the leg. All right, number two. On the night before the first day of school, that would be the Sunday night of Labor Day weekend, of course, you know, mid-September, throw the kids way in the back of the station wagon and drag them downtown to Kmart, Ames, Dollar General, Drug Fair, or the like, and hurry them over to the back to the school area to pick out a lunchbox. Make sure to tell them to get a move on because you don't have all night for them to make a decision. They need to be in bed by 8, and yes, they're going to miss the wonderful world of Disney if they can't decide between the Fawns and the Dukes of Hazard. I was just going to say, who had the happy days or the Laverne and Shirley uh, lunchbox? Why, yeah, why Why is it so hard for them to pick? Tell Kimberly if she can't make up her mind between Holly Hobby and the Bionic Woman, you're going to pick pigs in space and you don't want to hear another word about it until June. <laughs> and another thing, you better make sure, young lady or young man, that you take good care of that thermos <laughs> bottle that's inside that metal uh, box because... If you drop that thing, it'll shatter. the glass inside is going to shatter, and Mommy and Daddy are not going to be happy about it, and you're not getting another one. Grab, grab a composition book for each of them and pack a pencils too. That's all they need. Remember to save some grocery bags so they can cover their textbooks with them after the first day of school. <laughs> Number three, buy yourself a pack of Virginia Slims on the way out and smoke three of them on the way home. <laughs> or craving menthol like my mother did. Number four, get up in the morning... And make yourself a cup of Sanka with Sweet and Low. Line up all the lunch boxes on the Formica countertop in your kitchen. Open a bag of Wonder Bread and do this assembly line style. <laughs> Spread yellow mustard on bread. Slap bologna on bread. Unwrap American cheese slices and put on top of bologna. Put top on the sandwich and wrap sandwich in tin foil or wax paper. Put it in the lunch box. Every kid gets the same exact lunch, period. Oh, yeah. Ring any bells? 
And absolutely. And did you say wrap wrap a can of pop in tinfoil? Because everybody's mother did that. I have no idea why. Because it didn't do a, da- a darn thing to keep the pop cold. But uh, they all thought it would, I guess. Alternate sandwich choices could include peanut butter and grape jelly, peanut butter and marshmallow fluff, at the end of last night's leftover roast beef, or the ever-popular with children tuna fish with large chunks of onions and celery and Miracle Whip. Or even worse, salmon. The canned salmon. <laughs> yeah, no, I was know. victim of that multiple times because my mother said, hey, the salmon was on sale. And you ate it because that's all you had. Well, you were hungry. That's right. Put some planter's cheese balls into a baggie and close with a twist tie. Take Twinkies out of the box. Put one in each child's lunch box. Fill thermoses with either Kool-Aid or whole milk. And include a red delicious apple, even though you know that apple is going to come home uneaten again, which is fine because you just keep adding the same one until it practically rots. Oh, we just use them as uh, projectiles. The <laughs> apples, we threw them at each other at lunchtime outside. And finally, back in 1970s, close the lunchboxes, you're done. Go put some Barry Manilow on the record player and celebrate your kids are out of the house until dinner time. Then... <laughs> They'll grab them along with a frosted Dutch apple Pop-Tart on the way out the door as they walk half a mile down the road to get to the bus stop. That is 1970s getting ready for school. But, I don't know about you, that rings many, many, many bells, the whole well, thing. It, it does, except for it's missing one thing, and you can, you can always tell where these types of stories come from, where, where their national origin is. That had to be an American-based story because there was no reference made whatsoever in that bit to the Vashon Cakes. There was no mention of the, the Joe Louis. There was no mention of Half Moon. There was Tender no flaky. flaky. Right. Mm. I mean, clearly not a Canadian story. I'm kind of disappointed in you. Okay, so that's the 1970s. I think a lot of people listening at some point have been nodding, going, yeah, that sounds vaguely familiar. I, I remember that, especially the uh, the Wonder Bread with the one slice of bologna, one slice of cheese on the Formica countertop. All right, back to school 2014 or 2016. This was written a little while ago. Back to school in 2016. Here we go. Number one, take five deep breaths and say a positive affirmation. School begins in two weeks. It's the middle of July. Don't worry, you still have time to order a BPA-free bento boxes and authentic Indian Tiffins made with special stainless steel that did not involve any child labor, sweatshops, or animal cruelty. Remember, you have Amazon Prime. You can get the free two-day shipping and we'll still have plenty of time to read reviews and make this very important decision before your kids are out of summer camp, which is actually just another word for school in the summer, because you were so tired that day you had to have them home all day, you oh. couldn't go to your restorative flow class at yoga. <laughs> That's the truth. And you're right about the thing about camp thing. They keep calling these things camp. They're just, they're just daycares. They're, just, they're, they're school things. Camp was when you go up north and you go in a canoe. Exactly. And you have a campfire and you, you do stuff. You do crafts and you play games and that's what you do. That was the day something went horribly wrong with the homemade glitter cloud dough recipe that was supposed to go in their sensory bin. And the same day they were out of soy milk at Starbucks and you had to immediately email corporate to let them know that, duh, they should actually be selling almond milk and or coconut milk. Get with it, Starbucks. Soy is so 90s. But you digress. One week later, the bento boxes and tiffins have arrived. So has your children's school annual list of school supplies that you must purchase and deliver. It is three and a half pages long. It includes a 10-pound bag of flour and several cleaning products and also requests a Costco-sized package of toilet paper. Exactly. You've got young children. This is what happens. Yeah, you have to bring in a box of Kleenex. You have to to do that. But that's only the beginning. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. 
Begin frantic online search for backpacks and school bags made from all natural materials yet still cool. And then have them monogrammed. Of course. Well, you have to have the Mabel's labels. You've got to you make sure you mm. have time in there to get online to order the Mabel's labels because they're the only ones that won't come off of everything. And then you've got to plaster every single thing that kid owns with Mabel's labels because every kid in every building has the same because they all went to Costco and they all bought the same backpack and they all bought the same lunchbox because there aren't enough television shows now for kids to watch that they make the lunch boxes out of so they all get the roots lunch boxes and everybody looks the same. Yeah, it's like getting your luggage off the carousel at the airport. Everyone has the exact same suitcase. Yep. Okay, they so went to Costco. Number four, take kids shopping at the mall for new school clothes. Buy them each a completely new wardrobe from Jimbury and Crew Cuts. Spend two thousand three hundred and eighty seven dollars on your credit card. Yeah, that's about right. Number and five that's take, just for shoes. That, yeah. Number five, take children to the child psychologist to prepare them mentally for the difficult transition to a new grade, new teacher, and new classroom. <laughs> now, That's classic. Now we're starting to hit home because this is actually getting to be actually very true here. Intently study the allergy list the school has sent you, which lists all the items other children in your children's classes are allergic to and thus cannot be sent in your child's lunch either. This is extremely stressful because the last thing you or anyone wants to be responsible for is sending a second grader into anaphylactic shock. Make notes on your phone so you can remember what not to buy when you go to Whole Foods. Oh, yeah. Or even to touch, because you never know. That residue could get on that lunchbox and then get into the school and kill somebody. <laughs> Number seven, <laughs> purchase school supplies for your children. Not to be confused with the three-and-a-half-page list of classroom supplies you're responsible for. They will need paper, pens, folders, notebooks, a calligraphy set, 15 new apps for their tablets, a graphing calculator, a scalpel, an electron microscope, and a centrifuge. <laughs> It is. Bring back, the, bring back the days when we they just gave us one pink eraser, two pencils, uh, an eagle pen, and a bottle of that glue that you could never, it was always messy. The, the rubber tip on it, you had to jam yes. it down on the paper and it never worked right. Eight, go to Whole Foods to shop for school lunch items. This will take four hours and 15 minutes because you have to read every single label to make sure you're purchasing organic, locally sourced, non-GMO, gluten-free, allergy-friendly <laughs> products. You come home with tahini, bananas, and a package of brown rice cakes, yet you somehow spent $76. <laughs> it's, 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 it's funny because it's not unrealistic. The night before the first day of school, prepare the bento boxes. Fill containers with organic local strawberries intricately cut into the shapes of sea creatures. Include homemade nut-free granola made with certified gluten-free oats. Make a sandwich on vegan hemp bread out of tahini, kale, and jacaima. Form it into the shape of your child's favorite Disney character. Make flowers out of non-dairy cheese slices, olives, and seaweed. Then photograph the finished bento box and post it to Instagram. I was just about to say, and then you got to take pictures and put it all over Facebook, and then you got to check Facebook 14 times that day to see how many likes you're exactly. getting. Exactly. Make sure that you feel good about yourself and that you're a good mom or you're a good dad, or and that's what you need to do because you need that affirmation because without Facebook, you're nobody. Well, speaking of affirmation, 11, write your child an encouraging note, which includes an inspirational quote. Include a stick, a sheet of stickers for good measure. Then fill a SIG bottle with filtered water and also include a box of chilled coconut water in the bento box because children can never be too hydrated, ever. Exactly. Four, 14, blog about the experience. Pray it goes viral and is picked up by HuffPo. <laughs> 
15, get up at 4 in the morning on the first day of school. Make first day of school signs for each child to hold oh, as you yeah. photograph them on the front step. Make a bunting to hang above the front door. Blow up balloons. Actually, go ahead and make a full-on back-to-school photo booth. Absolutely. And, make, and, and then follow them to school. Yeah, with, that, with the camera. Make yeah. pancakes in the shape of the letters of the alphabet. Dress kids in coordinated outfits and send, spend 35 minutes posing and photographing them with your phone. 18, load everyone in the car to drive them to school. And finally, when they, are, when they are safely in their new classrooms, return to your car to cry for the next 20 minutes. But it's okay, really, because you'll be back in six hours to pick them up and drive them to synchronized swimming cello and Urdu classes this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> My, how times have changed. My, how times have changed. And yet, so, so unfortunately accurate. It is unfortunately accurate. It, it, it has become insane. And I don't know, I was talking to somebody the other day, I do not know where things came off the rails. I, I wanted to say that things came totally off the rails in 1994 when the internet came along. And would that be... That helped. It, it, that helped. Would you draw a line and say, if you, had to, if you had to pick one big spot in a timeline of the last three decades, let's say, where things went off the rails, would you not say it had to do with that? I think that, the, I don't know that that was the moment, but that may have been the launching point that put us on the pathway to this. The other thing, the other thing I thought of, and, and I, I know you're running out of time, but the, the other thing I thought of was when there were a series of, of terrible events that happened in, in the the late 80s, where children were disappearing and being abducted and being found dead and this kind of thing. And, and we got a, an, over, a, a, an overloaded sense that the boogeyman was out there, and we started to not let kids do anything without us hanging off of them the whole time. And, and I, I, it seems to me, and, and that's just going from my media experience back in the day, I remember these horrible stories, Alison Perot, Perot and, and these other famous stories, Clifford Olson, you know, that, that kind of stuff. I think that started to breed fear in people, and, and they started this helicopter parenting thing at that point, and it just, and it went viral. It caught on, you know? Absolutely. No, it is uh, something changed, uh, not necessarily for the better, but, um, hey, there's where we are. Jamie West, thanks for coming on. Thanks for, uh, thanks for doing this. Appreciate the time. It's always, uh, it's always a slice of baloney when it's <laughs> you can hear Jamie Sunday at 10 on Sunday Brunch here on CHML. Very quickly, and by the way, that whole thing, I'm posting it right now onto Facebook on my Scott Radley Show Facebook page. If you want to read it, if you want to grab it, if you want to show it to someone else, that whole thing will be there, the, the written one. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900 CHML.